You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking on the link on our homepage for the GoFundMe campaign, our homepage, bobcudmore.com. I'm Marta McDowell, and I've just published a book called Unearthing the Secret Garden about the children's classic and the life of its author, Francis Hodgson Burnett. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Marta McDowell, who has been with us twice before uh, about, well, not really similar topics, or will you be the judge. In 2017, she joined us to discuss her book on the landscape inspirations that impacted the author Laura Ingalls Wilder in Wilder's Little House on the Prairie books. And in 2019... Uh, She was with us to talk about her book on poet Emily Dickinson's gardening life. So, Marta, you're uh, an authority on on gardens. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you know about gardens? Yes, I teach landscape history and horticulture at the New York Botanical Garden. So I suppose you could call me a garden historian. That's my particular area of interest although I certainly am interested in the horticulture side of gardening as well. The horticultural side meaning how the garden does, is that right? That's right. So I like to get out there and dig in the garden as well. So I was just finishing up planting my bulbs yesterday. (laughs) So you have come up with or you have done kind of a, a series of books about authors and authors and their relationship with gardening or with their gardens. That's right, Bob. So it actually all started with Emily Dickinson. So that was the very first topic that I worked on, not as a book, but as an article. And it just brought me into a new spot of thinking about writers uh, and their gardening interests or their connections to gardening and nature. And so that's really what's interested me over time, and I just keep returning to that because it just seems to have a lot of, uh, of scope. Well, let's uh, focus on the, the current uh, book, Unearthing the Secret Garden, uh, The Plants and Places That Inspired Francis Hodgson Burnett to write uh, the book, The Secret Garden, which came out uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, over a century ago, right, uh, this this book was published, and it's become a classic, would you say, children's book? This is a, a book of greatest, greatest interest to children? Yes, I think it's, you know, you'll normally find it shelved in the children's section, you know, in a bookshop or a library these days. Uh, she didn't really write it specifically for children, In those days, it was first published in 1911, there wasn't really the same distinction between the adult market and the children's market. So I guess nowadays we call it a young adult book, right? It's a chapter Mm -hmm. book. Uh, It's never been out of print, and it's been in many, many editions, Bob. So lots and lots of different illustrators. It's been adapted into different film and television series. Uh, There's even a graphic novel now of The Secret Garden. Well, tell us about 
you know, the gist of the story. What there's a, there's a secret garden, and there's a key to the garden, and what, what what's going on there? Yes. Yeah, so it's the story of a young girl named Mary Lennox. She's born in India. Her parents are part of the British Raj, and they both die of cholera, and so she's orphaned. Uh, she's kind of a nasty, spoiled little girl. She's sent up to England to live with a widowed uncle on his estate, which is called Misselthwaite Manor, this estate, you know, on the Yorkshire Moors. And it's sort of a lonely existence. She has the servants and, you know, the gardener and things like that. Uh, and there are these extensive grounds, and she catches wind of the fact that there's a garden somewhere, a walled garden that's been locked up for 10 years. And so it's kind of mysterious. You know, it's got a little bit of a gothic novel kind of aspects to it. And in the course of the book, she does find the key. She finds the door. She gets into this forbidden place, and she discovers gardening. And it's sort of you know, sort of opens up from there. So mm. I read it as a child. You know, I think many people did. You know, so it's a familiar book. I just wondered, gee, did the author have a garden? And it started from there. Yeah. Well, well, did she? I mean, I guess, yeah, what, what was her, Frances Hodgson Burnett's uh, experience with the gardening? So not until much later in life. Uh, her garden interests preceded her writing of this book, as you might imagine, by about 10 years. So she had her first garden. She was about 50 years old um, from 1898 to 1908. Uh, It's a difficult period of her life. She finds gardening quite soothing and, you know, gets a lot of consolation from it. And then she loses that garden. And it's at that period that she writes The Secret Garden. And so it does all kind of come out of that and her life. So that was just great when I learned that. Now, would you say that The Secret Garden is the maybe the one book that people remember about Burnett today or one of the books, or is that not so? I mean, because she, she wrote a lot of books, but uh, do we remember any of the others? Well, she's certainly no longer a household name. You know, contrast her to someone like Laura Ingalls Wilder or Emily Dickinson, even more so, where pretty much everyone would recognize her name. When I told people I was writing a book about Frances Hodgson Burnett, they would look at me like, who, you know, what are you talking about? Uh, So... Yes, as you say, she was an extremely prolific author. She wrote between 40 and 50 novels. She wrote lots of magazine pieces. She dramatized many of her books for the stage. But if she's remembered at all, it's as the author of The Secret Garden. Uh, maybe people will recognize A Little Princess, because that's also been you know, made into sort of British television kind of miniseries, um, and maybe some remember Little Lord Fauntleroy, 
which was definitely her breakthrough book when it came out in 1886. It was one of these just huge, huge bestsellers that everyone was reading. Although nowadays it tends to be a bit of a pejorative. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I would say that's the book that I know, know of or knew of or that phrase, but I, it, to me, it's just, I don't really know the book. I just know the phrase and maybe this concept of who a little Lord Fauntleroy would be, sort of a foppish young kid dressed to the nines and uh, old, you know, what are now old clothes. You know, that's what it's come to represent. Although the book is very sweet. I read it because I had never read it, you know, in the course of writing this book. And I watched the old movie with Freddie Bartholomew, which is really quite sweet. Uh, if you're, if you just need, you know, something like a break from, from, uh, <laughs> from watching the news. I don't know. Right, right. Well, let me get you to talk more about Frances Hodgson Burnett, the uh, the woman. She was from, in a sense, both England and America, wasn't she? Yes, she definitely had, you know, sort of a foot on both continents. And depending on who you ask, they'll either say, well, you know, she was a British writer, or people will say, no, no, she was an American writer. And that's because she split her life, in a way, between the two. She was born in England. Uh, she was born in Manchester in 1849. Manchester was in the north. It was a sort of boom town from cotton manufacturing at the time. And her father was a merchant. You know, he made a good living. They were very comfortable, she and her four siblings. Um, but her father died when she was young, and, and the family fell on kind of increasingly hard times. And eventually her mother kind of sells up and takes the whole family to Tennessee, where she had a brother. So it would have been Francis's uncle. Uh, he had a business in Knoxville, again, as a merchant. Uh, he was able to provide some work for Francis's two brothers, but the, the women of the family, so her mother and her two sisters, uh, they lived in a little kind of cabin that he owned out in Newmarket, so it was really quite rural. Um, and it was at that point when they were just scraping by that Frances starts to write down her many stories. She was always a very imaginative child and eventually gets one of them published. And so she's a teenager when her professional writing career starts. Mm. Kind of sounds like Louisa May Alcott, you know, helping us or supporting the family by her writing. Yes, and it, you know, it was interesting because I found in the course of of working on the book that Alcott and Burnett knew one another. They met in Boston. Uh, Frances lived there for a period when I think mostly when she was working on getting some of her plays, you know, up and running on the stage there. And Louisa May Alcott said, you know, yes, I'm reading Little Lord Fauntleroy, and I see Mrs. Burnett as often as I can. But she she talks about how, you know, Frances was 
not well, that, that she was just on the mend and she was really overworked. Was she really, what was wrong with uh, Frances uh, that uh, Louisa May Alcott is talking about here? Well, she had been writing full-time, really since she was a teenager. Uh, by this time, she would have been about in her 30s. Uh, she had since married uh, while her husband was studying to be a doctor and getting his practice started, she continued to support them through her writing. Uh, she had two sons, so she was also a working at-home mom. And I think she just was exhausted. So uh, she did, I, I will say, too, that she... She suffered from periods of depression during her life. Uh, in that same letter, Louisa May Alcott says, what a pity we cannot buy a new head as we mm. do our bonnets. Fortunately, not possible, right? No, no, it's not possible today. She was already a famous author, I guess I'm trying to say, while she was still in America. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, um, over time, she... And uh, her husband, Swan Burnett, they, they seem to have drifted apart. Um, so she was living away more and more. And then uh, after her older son, Lionel, dies, you know, very sad, he dies of tuberculosis, uh, she settles in London, you know, on her own. Uh, her, her younger son is by this time... Uh, in college, um, so she rents a house in London, and then when her when Vivian, her son, graduates from Harvard, she divorces her first husband, and it's at that point where she decides to take a country place south of London in Kent, and it was there she starts to garden. So that's where the gardening comes into her life. That's right. Her, her son called it her pastoral period, although she kept on gardening for the rest of her life. So she starts gardening around age 50. She gardens really with a vengeance until she dies in her 70s. And over that 25-year period, she creates three different gardens. So she got a lot done. T tell us about her three gardens. So the first was the largest. It was in Kent in a little village called Rolvenden. It's not too far from Rye and the English Channel. And she decided to rent a place in the country, you know, thinking, oh, it'll be cheaper to live there. Well, what she decides to rent is a 200-acre estate uh, with a good-sized house called Maytham Hall, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so extensive gardens and a park in the English sense of the word, you know, with great old trees, and she just falls for gardening in general and for roses in particular, and really goes to it, <laughs> right. plants a lot of plants, falls in love with flowers, makes this very special walled garden that she called, you know, my rose garden. This was her place, kind of a, an arts and crafts style romantic garden where she liked to write mm. and invite her special friends. Do you suppose that was the prototype for the secret garden? 
Well, luckily, there's documentation to that fact, which was delightful to discover. Uh, most of her papers are at Princeton in the Firestone Library, part of the university. I came across a note that she had written to a friend where she calls the secret garden our rose garden as if it had been locked up for years and some hungry children had found it. That was delightful to find that, you know, that little paper trail where she leaves that um, kind of for posterity. But you say there were two other gardens that she built in different places? That's right. So after she leaves Maytham Hall, which was kind of, um, you know, it was really tearing, you know, she felt torn away from it. Uh, it was sold. She had always been leasing it. So it was sold. She could have bought it, but her son, so this is her last surviving child, is living in New York City. And so he convinces his mother to come back to America to build a house on the north shore of Long Island and to make her home there so that he could see her more often. And it was just irresistible, you know, the way that might be. Uh, and so she does that. Uh, so she had a home um, called Plandome Park in the town of Manhasset. It was a three-acre garden, so much smaller than Maytham Hall, but right on the water, quite lovely. And she made really nice gardens there as well. Again, full of roses. But she hated the winters. So she'd spend the winters in Bermuda, where she rents yet another house <laughs> called Clifton Heights and makes a subtropical garden there. So at that point in her life, she had two gardens going at once. Now, what part of her life are we in? Is this before or after the Secret Garden is published, which I believe was 1911? Yes, that's right. So she moves into Plandome at about 1910. Uh, and just a couple of years after that, she starts wintering in Bermuda. And so uh, Clifton Heights is not long after that. So they both come after England. Uh, she did continue to visit England, but she never lived there again. Oh, okay. And the secret garden, you know, the focus of your book and the, and the focus of interest in uh, Frances Hodgson Burnett today, but... I get the impression that when it first came out, it did well, but, you know, she had books that had done better. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, some of her adult novels had done better. There was The first one was called That Lass of Lowry's, which was a novel set, again, in the north of England. It was uh, about a daughter of a coal miner. Uh, that did quite well. She did one called The Shuttle that was about society people going back and forth, much the way she did on steamship lines, shuttling back and forth between America and uh, Great Britain. So lots of her novels did well. Little Lord Fauntleroy, as I said, was sort of like, you know, Harry Potter, where everyone was reading it, children and adults. You know, the fact that she would... Uh, be remembered as a garden writer, and particularly a children's writer, I think she'd find very puzzling, Bob. Probably. Was she kind of a household name, you know, uh, when she was alive? 
Yes, I think, you know, people bought her books. You know, when new books came out, uh, they would have been featured prominently in the bookshops, you know, the way an author that's known today is, you know, recommended and upfront and regularly reviewed. Uh, you know, if you look at old newspapers and just look up her name, there'll be advertisements from her publisher. You know, she was someone who just kept putting out books and selling them. And, and did the books keep the wolf from the door? I mean, was she suffering from money problems anymore? <laughs> well, she she had to keep writing at the pace that she did to maintain her lifestyle. And I'd say she was very generous with her family. She gave to charities. Um, but she always was thinking about how to make the next dollar, uh, even in the 1920s. So this is at the very end of her life. She writes to her son at this point. She's in Bermuda, and he's in New York because it's a winter month. And she says, I foresee one is going to make a, you know, a tidy living off of film rights. So here's like a brand new medium, and she's already thinking about, I can sell my stories to the movies. Well, did she? She did, although, again, she dies in 1924, so it was fairly early on. But there were early film versions, uh, including silent movies, of some of her books. So, yes, absolutely, and I'm sure that uh, her son, you know, who was her heir, continued to sell her uh, stories to the movies. Uh, the My favorite film version of The Secret Garden even though there have been many wonderful versions, is still the the MGM from 1949 that um, that is just a wonderful movie. I hate to ask such a blunt question, but what's the point of the secret garden? That it's secret, or that it's a beautiful garden, or something else? Well, I think that it is a place where, you know, people are changed and healed and improved. So the Secret Garden takes Mary Lennox, who is this kind of sickly, spoiled child, and really makes her whole. Uh, another important part of the book is Mary discovers that she has a cousin, so her uncle has a uh, young boy about Mary's age who's an invalid, he's bedridden, He's also similarly spoiled. He comes out to the secret garden, and it heals him as well. So, you know, it has a little bit of gothic novel aspect to it. Uh, one of her friends described it as a children's Jane Eyre. Uh, it has a little bit of, like, you know, Heidi kind of with a, you know, a crippled child being cured, um, and to some degree, I think that was also Burnett rewriting her own son's story, right? She lost her son, Lionel. Mm. She couldn't cure him, but she could write about a child who got better. I was going to ask you, but what about her health? But as with many parents, I mean, as she's older, her focus is on her children's health. I mean, so health is a, is a big deal to 
well, to everybody, but to, it wants to burn in. Yes, and, and loss. So, you know, in the book, Mary loses her parents. Uh, the uncle, Archibald Craven, has lost his wife, Colin's mother. Um, and so there is that kind of dealing with loss. How do you deal with loss over time? And, uh, you know, and how to turn back to the living, the living in the garden, the living in your family, uh, and to move move forward over time. Mm. Um, your books, of course, focus on the, the gardening aspect, but you do a lot of research. Uh, just kind of tell us some of the, uh, the, the pictorial elements that you've got in the new book about the secret garden. Well, yes, I, I love to have a lot of pictures in my books. I think that, you know, it adds to the experience of learning about history. Uh, so this is a, a historical person. Uh, there are pictures of her and her family, pictures of the places she lived, and, you know, various ephemera related to the book and to her gardening. So, you know, pictures of the catalogs that she used to order plants for her garden. Uh, you know, it, it just, it helps you picture, uh, in addition to the words, to see, uh, you know, what it looked like. And the book itself, The Secret Garden, was just a really rich source. Uh, so through the course of writing the book, I assembled as many of the editions of the book that I could find because it's just been beautifully illustrated over time. So each uh, iteration of the Secret Garden book has different um, illustrations. Yeah, so I grew up with illustrations by Tasha Tudor, uh, so that was one illustrator, but she did her illustrations in the 1960s. Uh, the first American edition was a woman named M.L. Kirk. She was a Pennsylvania artist and illustrator. So that was the American edition in 1911. Uh, but, you know, in between those and since then, there have been quite a number of other illustrators, Charles Robinson, Nora Unwin, and, and very contemporary ones. So uh, I tried to give a sampling of all of those because each artist also has their own interpretation of the story uh, that as you say, you know, it survived for over a hundred years and it continues to be retold. So it definitely has staying power. Well, you've been talking about this, the answer to this question, but I'll ask you again. Why does The Secret Garden continue to get readership after more than a century? I think it's a very touching story. Uh, I, I reread it and I also actually listened to a recorded version of The Secret Garden in the course of this. And it's still a very touching story. I think because the characters are complicated, you know, they're not all good, the way little Lord Fauntleroy was sort of all good, so it seems almost too sweet nowadays, that in The Secret Garden, the people are, you know, are more nuanced. So I think that's one part of it. 
the other is, I think it's just a good story, Bob. I think it, you know, it holds up. Is it a great book? Is it a great book? Well, I don't know about that, but it's certainly a book that's influenced a lot of people. It was fun when I when I would talk to groups about some other topic and mention that I was working on this book. You know, many people would just like they'd light up when I talked about the secret garden. So it, it's it's like those books that are important to us as children. I don't. Did you have some favorites as a child? Um, not not like that. I. I, I got into reading 18th century stuff uh, toward the end of my child, early teen years, but uh, no, I can't say as I did. Well, I had books like Little Women, you know, that sort of thing that, uh, you know, that I just read over and over again, and this was certainly one of them. Marta McDowell is author of Unearthing the Secret Garden. Thank you for listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.